Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to Ephesians Lesson 10. In our last lesson, we realized that our identity had been changed now that we are in Christ, because according to Ephesians 5 verse 8, we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. And as such, we're to walk as children of the light. We're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness any longer. And because the days are evil, we really have to make the most of our time and the opportunities that God gives to us. And to do that, we need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that he has for us. Paul, in fact, says that we are to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And because we all come from a different starting point here, let me just emphasize that the Holy Spirit is not a thing. He is not just the power of God, but rather he is a person. Now, you may have have heard some people refer to the Holy Spirit as it rather than he, but that's not what the Bible teaches. For example, in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 7, a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira sold their property and pretended to give everything to the church in Jerusalem, when in reality they kept part of the money back for themselves. Now, you have to understand that they didn't have to give everything. It was really up to them to decide how much to give. So what they gave wasn't the issue. The issue was that they lied about what they had been given. Satan He is the father of lies, and Peter clearly reminded them of that, saying that Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, we can't lie to a table. We can't lie to a chair, some inanimate object. We can't lie to a fire or to the wind either. In fact, you can only lie to a person. And Peter goes on to clearly reveal that the person of the Holy Spirit is in fact God himself, saying to the couple in Acts 5 verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit indwells us as believers in Christ, and Paul calls us to allow him to continually fill us to overflowing. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul also calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for God. And that's where we're going to pick up in the text today. As we begin to focus on what submission to one another looks like within the context of different relationships. Before we do, though, I want us to look at what the word for submission really means here. In verse 21, submitting is the Greek word hupotasso, which was a military term that meant to arrange soldiers under the command of a leader. It was also used to describe voluntary cooperation. We are all to respect one another out of love for Christ, who is our commander-in-chief. He is our provider. He is the one who ultimately determines my future, and he determines how best I can be used for his kingdom. And understanding that is going to help me work together with others in the church for his fame and his glory. 
Now, the next thing we need to understand here is that Paul is addressing submission, this voluntary attitude of cooperation, within the framework of Christian relationships. This is how believers are to submit to one another out of love for Christ. A submissive attitude is important within our relationships as Christians, and I think that I've got a good illustration here of why that is. Many of us know what it's like to drive down a dog narrow road at the dead of night and you know that there's nothing worse than when another vehicle comes at you from the opposite direction with their lights on full. It's blinding and you can't see where the road is anymore. Everyone would be a lot safer if both of the drivers dimmed their own lights for the sake of others. When you and I refuse to cooperate with one another, we can put ourselves and others in great danger. Unfortunately, it's often no different in our relationships because there's a lot of stress and pain that's caused when we won't cooperate with each other. Before we look at the text about husbands and wives, though, it's important for us to understand how really radical these words of Paul were in his day. You see, men had a very poor view of women, seeing them as possessions rather than as the partners God intended them to be. The concepts that Paul would share concerning Christian marriage were truly revolutionary at that time, for we're going to see him emphasize the joint value of both of the marriage partners and he's going to stress a need for mutual love and respect between husband and wife and that was truly against the culture of that day. Now, with that as our base, we're going to go and look on at what Paul says in verse 22. But remember, this is said to those who are in Christ. So this is to believers. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. I love this section of text because it repeatedly says wives are to voluntarily cooperate with their own husbands. In a sense, men and women are to willingly cooperate with one another throughout the church, but a woman is to especially cooperate with her own husband. The Greek in the text there is idios anea, meaning a woman is to submit to the husband that belongs to her personally. And the reason she does this is because she belongs to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice in the text that it says that the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. The first thing to note here is in the same way that Christ is head of the church, the husband is head of the wife. Let me ask you, husband, something. How does Christ really treat his church? Does he treat her like a slave? No, he treats her with love so great that he is willing to lay down his own life for her. 
And how does his bride, the church, respond to him? Does she cooperate with him out of terror? No, she cooperates with him out of a love born from appreciation, trust, and respect. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. The way I've always looked at this is that there will be times in a Christian marriage when a decision has to be made. After allowing for prayer and respectful discussion, if there's still disagreement between the husband and wife and a decision absolutely has to be made, the job of the wife in that case is to let her husband lead knowing that he is answerable to God. I I like to think of the family as being similar to a soccer team. Everyone has their positions and everyone is vital. You can play a great offensive game, but in order to win, your defense has to be just as good. In any team, there are different positions that are equally valuable. That's why they're a team. And the same is true in marriage. A wife may be better at some things and a husband better at others, but they must work together. However, every team has a captain, and the captain is responsible from time to time to make a split decision on the direction that the team should take. Of course, in those moments, the rest of the team doesn't take a vote. They don't walk off the field saying that they won't play if they won't get their way. No, they submit. They voluntarily cooperate, knowing that the captain is answerable to the coach. And let me just say, the captain's not going to make any decision um, rashly if he knows that he has to give that report to the coach afterwards. It helps to think of a Christian marriage that way too. Husbands and wives are both valuable. They look out for one another. They play to one another's strengths. But should it come down to a final quick decision that must be made, wives are to trust God and they're to submit to their husbands. They're to willingly cooperate, knowing that he is going to bear the full responsibility for the decision. But it isn't all one-sided because marriage really revolves around mutual love and respect. For just as a man longs to be appreciated and respected, a woman longs to be loved. Paul emphasizes here that in loving his wife, a man is not a dictator, but rather he must be willing to make any sacrifice, no matter how great it is, for her good. Look at the command for husbands next in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 
Husbands are to love their wives, and do you see it is to be just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Husbands are to be willing to lay down their own lives for their wife, and that's far more than just literally, because there will be times when investing in her may require putting aside your own personal agenda, your own desires, or your own dreams. Look at what we're told about Christ's love for his bride, the church. He gave up his own life for her, but it was with a purpose. It was so that she might be drawn closer to God and set apart for his use, so that she might become all that she could be in Christ. I want you to know I have no greater example of this than my own husband, Colin. He selflessly supported me in ministry over the years with no thought for himself. He was willing to make great personal sacrifices for me to be able to do what I do and so that I could become the person who Christ wants me to be. And I can tell you, I am a far better person because of him. And I'm a far better minister of the gospel because of his Christ-like love. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." Paul reminded married couples that they were one flesh now that God has joined them together. Every husband is to love his own wife, not someone else's. And because his own wife is flesh of his flesh, he is to care for her as if she were part of his own body. God's call on the man's life, according to Paul, is that he would treat his wife the same way that he would treat himself. For in marriage, the two become one, and if one suffers, both suffer. I mean, think about a body, for example. If the foot is hurt, the whole body is going to struggle. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." So following the example of Christ, the husband is called to love his own wife as himself, and the wife is called to respect her husband, remembering that ultimately her husband is accountable to God for his leadership, and she's accountable to God for trusting the Lord as she allows her husband to lead. Now Paul goes on, at the beginning of chapter 6, to look at the parent-child relationship as well. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Before we go any further, it's very important to understand that in the culture that Paul wrote this, because Ephesus, though a free city, was really dominated by Rome. Paul's words concerning marriage were going to be countercultural. 
Because um, at that time in Rome, a father had complete rights over his family and his children, no matter how old they were. He was even able to sell his child into slavery if he wanted to. In Roman culture, the, the father's word was final. He had total control over every aspect of his child's life, to the extent that when a child was born, it would be laid at its father's feet, and if he picked it up, it would live, and if he walked away, that child would be thrown out with the trash. It's into that culture that Paul is speaking to those who have come to Christ, saying that they are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You see, it's out of our love for Christ and our trust in his goodness that we are able to do the right thing, as long as our parents have legal authority over us. He reminds them, and us too, to honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth, is the fifth commandment of God, and it's the first one to have a specific promise attached to it. In the context of a godly family, if a child listens to his parents and obeys, their life will prosper and they will follow the Lord's instruction, which is the very thing that causes it to prosper. Now, my father was absent a lot of my childhood. He worked away on a mine in a different city. He did not believe in God, and the only instruction he ever gave me was to, and I quote him, do as I say, not as I do. My mom was the one who actually had absolute control over me, and in those early days, before she came to Christ, this was one of the few scriptures that she knew, and she would bring it out frequently, making it very clear that God expected me to obey her and honor her no matter what she did or what she said. The problem was, at the time, she had never gone on to read verse 4 and what that says there, because Paul says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So the relationship between parent and child is not a one-sided relationship. Children do have a responsibility, but parents also have a responsibility. And I like the way the NIV puts that verse. It says, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I know that as parents, we are to protect our children and they may not always understand our decisions, but we also have to be very careful because I think many of us know what it was like to have a parent who drove us to exasperation with their unreasonable demands and their harsh actions. That approach is not God's model for the family. God wants parents to bring their children up in his ways and we are to remember that we're told in Ephesians 4.29 that what comes out of our mouths as parents must be helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. As parents, we can never forget the importance of encouragement. It accomplishes so much more than criticism ever could. You know, I knew a man once who, when his little boy showed him the pictures that he'd colored in kindergarten, the man would crossly say that they weren't good enough, and he'd take the pictures and throw them in the trash in front of his child. 
Oh, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Children must honour their parents, but parents are not to discourage their children. They are to treat them in the way that God treats them. And we're going to need to be walking in the training and in the instruction of the Lord ourselves because we can't pass on to another person something we don't know personally. Now, I understand that some of us listening to this may be sitting here thinking, Dear Lord, I made such a mess of my kids' lives and it's too late because now they're fully grown. Well, if that's you, let me encourage you to repent. Ask God to forgive you. Hand the situation over to him. You may even have to ask them to forgive you. But God is the repairer of broken things and he can heal broken relationships in time. Paul then goes on to speak about the relationship between servant and master, or if you like, between Christian employee and Christian employer. Verse 5, bond servants be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Rich Romans were terribly lazy, and it is believed that in those days there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. A slave's life was a very hard life. They were considered things to possess. They were seen as being less than human. Torture, even death, were common. Now, Paul is not approving of slavery here. He's merely speaking into the culture of that time in a radical way about our relationships. He states that slaves should be obedient to their masters according to the flesh, and that's very interesting because putting it that way, Paul is highlighting the truth that the slave master only has authority over the person's physical body in the physical realm. They rule according to the flesh, but they don't have ownership over the person's spirit. They may be able to break the body, but they cannot touch what is inside of a person because that belongs to Christ. Any slave who follows Jesus was to remember that because Christ was their master, he is the one to whom they really belonged, and they were to live as his good ambassador despite their present conditions. Do you see that according to verse 6, in those conditions, Christians were called to work, not with eye service as men pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, a Christian should be diligent. They were not to work only when their earthly master was watching them so that they could earn favor with him. No, this applies to us as well. We are to work hard always 
lives as those serving Christ in all things. For the eye of our heavenly master is always on us. Slave or free, God will reward your work. Any upright and honorable deed will receive a reward from him eventually. Now, we have to remember that what is required of the Christian servant also applies to the Christian master. Look at Ephesians 6, 9. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So in each of these different relationships, we learn that they're two-sided. We have to cooperate with one another, treating others in the same way that we would want to be treated. We have to live differently to the world around us because we're to be imitators of God as his dearly loved children. And because of that, we're to live a life of love. We must be willing to lay ourselves aside for others, just as Christ loved us enough to give himself up for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that submission is not a difficult thing when viewed from your lens. All you are asking us to do is to trust you and willingly cooperate with one another, treating each other with a mutual love and respect that is found because we are in Christ our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of that calling and let us be good ambassadors for Jesus in every circumstance and in every relationship. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.